dodges I ride in this wind On my good horse I call you My shiny black bass To the playhouse of fortune To take the bright silver And gold you have taken From somebody else And as we go riding In the damp foggy You're listening to episode 736 of Unwelcome Guests, why 9-11 is still the issue. I'm Robin Upton, and 14 and a bit years since we started to look at the events of September the 11th, we still keep turning up new angles on the event. This time we're going to be looking at the institutional silence on 9-11. We're going to be focusing on the legal structures such as exist, the UN in particular, supposed to be preventing wars, we've seen a decade and a half near enough of aggressive wars masked as defence. Our first contributor to the show, law lecturer Amy Baker Benjamin, asks, how can that be possible? It's not a lack of historical precedent, as we shall hear, Almost all the wars of the 20th century were begun with some sort of false flag incident. Now, this paper is no longer online, but in my academically educated opinion, makes a quite compelling and very well-referenced case explaining why the UN and the academic community in particular have really failed to get to grips with the events of 9-11. I'm reading the paper which was put online in January 2016. 9-11 as false flag. Why international law must dare to care. By Amy Baker Benjamin, a lecturer in public international law at AUT University Law School, who received her law degree from Yale Law School. Abstract. At the heart of contemporary international law lies a paradox. The attacks on the United States of September the 11th, 2001, have justified nearly 15 years of international law, yet the official international community, embodied principally in the United Nations, has failed to question or even scrutinize the U.S. government's account of those attacks. Despite the impressive and serious body of literature that has emerged to suggest that 9-11 was a classic, if unprecedentedly monstrous, false flag attack, international statesmen, following the lead of scholars, have acted as if there is no controversy whatsoever. This disconnect between the growing alternative evidentiary record of state responsibility for the attacks and the focus of international institutions, is impossible to sustain if those institutions are to maintain any semblance of viability and meaning. In a three-step process, this article seeks to connect the international community to the possible reality of 9-11 as false flag. First, it shows that it is highly rational to question the official 9-11 account, 
given the historical record of the first half of the 20th century, which reveals a pattern of false flag attacks over which the international community openly fretted and tried to exercise jurisdiction. Second, it analyzes the reasons why intellectual elites and the statesmen they influence are behaving irrationally in not inquiring into the possibility of 9-11 as false flag, deconstructing a multifaceted motive into all its unsavory parts. Third, it argues that the means for ceasing this irrational behavior is readily available, as the United Nations need only carry out its core and incontrovertible jury function of determining the existence of aggression in order to exercise a long overdue oversight of the official 9-11 narrative. Introduction No matter what one may think about the nature of the attacks that took place in the United States on September the 11th, 2001, one thing is beyond dispute. Those attacks have provided the legal, political and moral justifications for nearly 15 years of international war. Indeed, it is not an exaggeration to say that, with few exceptions, all use of force roads laid since the beginning of this century lead back to the Rome of 9-11. These would include the 2001 invasion and occupation of Afghanistan, the 2003 invasion and occupation of Iraq, the series of drone strikes here, cluster bombings there, the current mission to degrade and defeat ISIL in Iraq and Syria, and even the recently rumoured need to re-intervene in Libya at some point now that it has become a failed state that may be in the business of harbouring terrorists. Each one of these military campaigns is based on the legal authorization and moral dispensation granted by domestic and international authorities in the days following 9-11 to respond to the attacks of that day. Ask today for the legal basis of fighting a global war on terror against groups that were not even in existence in 2001, and you'll be handed a copy of the law passed just seven days after 9-11, authorizing the president to use force against the perpetrators and abettors of 9-11, i.e. al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Challenge the wisdom of fighting a war on terror to the end of a second decade, and you will likely be chided for inviting a terror attack on a par with, or even worse than, 9-11. From the standpoint of international law and international political morality, then, 9-11 presumes to shoulder the heaviest of loads, a monumental amount of war to date, with apparently a good deal of war still to come. We would do well to remind ourselves, however, that this shouldering is only as strong and effective as the claim of self-defense on which it is based. The war on terror is, after all, a war that is claimed to be fought in self-defense. Were this claim ever to be proved false, were it ever to be shown that the United States was not, in fact, attacked by others on 9-11, but rather attacked itself, or let itself be attacked, for the purpose of blaming others and justifying international war, then its war would not be one of self-defense, 
premeditated and carefully camouflaged aggression. Further, all subsequent events of terror deemed connected to 9-11 through the inchoate skein of violence that flowed from it, Madrid's 3-11, London's 7-7, Paris's 1-7 and 11-13, would immediately become suspect as representing aspects of the same foundational fraud. In this sensitive matter especially, the obvious bears repeating. If 9-11 is in fact an instance of Machiavellian state terror, then any U.S. pretense that these wars have to do with self-defense is totally unsustainable. Precisely because so much is at stake, one would think that international institutions such as the United Nations would have been keenly interested in satisfying themselves that the American claim of self-defense is valid. But, astonishingly enough, they have never shown any such interest. In the days and weeks following 9-11, the UN accepted without hesitation or scrutiny the American claim to have been attacked by elements of international terrorism. NATO more or less followed suit, even though the peremptory nature of its mutual self-defense pact obliged it to probe the validity of the American self-defense claim, not merely rubber-stamp it. Moreover, despite the impressive body of serious literature that has emerged since 9-11 challenging the official version of the attacks and strongly suggesting that they were either perpetrated by elements of the U.S. government or allowed by them to happen, neither the UN nor NATO has ever bestirred itself to revisit the crucial issue of responsibility and authorship. This reluctance to ask hard questions in the halls of international institutions that are charged with the duty to go there and vet claims of national self-defense has unfortunately been matched non-discourse for non-discourse by the silence of scholars. It is really quite astonishing. Scholars as a group scurry away from the controversy surrounding the official version of 9-11 as if it were the intellectual equivalent of kryptonite. This is not to say, of course, that they reject 9-11 as an object of study. Quite the contrary, they've embraced it, but only so far and only in a highly circumscribed way. Scholars specialising in international law, or international relations for example, have generated hundreds if not thousands of articles and books on 9-11, but almost all such studies assume the correctness of the core US claim of self-defence, and then proceed to nibble on issues that lie around its perimeter. Do the laws of war apply to a war on terror that features, on one side, non-state actors? Can the 9-11 attacks support a paradigm shift away from anticipatory self-defense to preventative self-defense? Can the torture of terror suspects be justified on a warfare approach to counter-terrorism, as opposed to a crime approach, and vice versa? All good questions, these, but they uniformly assume a U.S. government-friendly answer 
to the most pressing question of all. Was the United States the victim of attacks by others, or was 9-11 a false flag? If the latter, then these scholars are not merely feeding on downstream phenomenon, they're boxing at shadows projected onto the cave wall by a calculating and highly dangerous criminal elite. A good deal of academic ink has also been spilled studying 9-11 as a conspiracy theory phenomenon. The scholars who author this literature, many of whom practice in the social sciences, but there are a few lawyers as well, regard those who question the official version of 9-11 as conspiracy theorists, who should not under any circumstances be engaged on the evidentiary claims, but rather objectified and studied in an effort to ascertain the cause of their distemper. Even scholars who concede that the US government has engaged in heinous acts of state terror in the past, including a proposal at the highest level of government during the Kennedy administration to commit false flag attacks against American citizens for the purpose of justifying war against Cuba, refuse to dwell on such episodes or draw any conclusions from them relative to the evidentiary debate concerning 9-11, which they resolutely refuse to participate in. Surely academia has reached some sort of level of the absurd, when not even Marxist scholars will entertain doubts about the official 9-11 account, and when a respected Swiss historian, who wishes merely to subject that account to academic scrutiny, is reduced to pleading with his colleagues, wir müssen über die Vergangenheit sprechen. We must talk about the past. Indeed. We are, it seems, at a stalemate, one that I hope to soften and perhaps break. My main contention is that, however long Americans might domestically be prepared to live with a no decision regarding the official 9-11 account, international law can no longer tolerate it. The core mission of the premier public international body, the United Nations, is to perform its jury function of determining whether an act of aggression has occurred. Pretextual self-defense based on a false flag event is, almost by definition, aggression, even if the collective security role of the UN system, as reflected in the second half of Article 39 of the Charter, seems to have withered on the vine and to now be worth little. The UN's jury role, as reflected in the first half of Article 39, remains firmly intact. Uh, Article 39, by the way, reads, quote, The Security Council shall determine the existence of any threat to the peace, breach of the peace, or act of aggression, and make recommendations, or decide what measures shall be taken in accordance with Articles 41 and 42 to maintain or restore international peace and security, unquote. Importantly, and as I will show below, this is true regardless of whether this jury role is viewed as being rooted in the positive law of Article 39 or in the pre-charter customary international law. For the UN's political organs to ignore the controversy surrounding the events of 9-11 is to abdicate all responsibility in fulfilling their core mission. It is, in a sense, 
to deny their own raison d'etre. This, indeed, is an outcome to be avoided, if at all possible. But is it possible? Can the UN's political organs finally, after all these years, muster the will to pass judgment on the U.S. claim to have been the victim of international terrorism on 9-11? They certainly can, but they obviously need some help. Members of those bodies, along with the scholars whose works infuse the atmosphere in which they deliberate, must first confront the reasons for their silence and abdication of duty to date. An awakening of sorts is needed and it can only come to pass on the basis of collective self-understanding. In an effort to prompt such understanding, I will argue that officialdom and scholars appear to be in the grip of an intellectual formalism every bit as vice-like as the Lochner-era formalism American law students are taught to frown upon and deride from the very first moment of their studies. This formalism functions in the nature of a gatekeeper, letting some ideas, issues and facts into our minds, and from there into the public domain, while sternly barring others. As for what lies back of this formalism, lending it its terrible strength, two sadly plausible guesses emerge. Fear, and its handmaiden, corruption. But perhaps the best because the easiest place to begin in an effort to break the 9-11 stalemate will not be with the international political mechanics of change, see infra part 3, nor with the critical inspection, see infra part 2, but with an appeal to history. The case of 9-11 is so fraught with anger and ignorance as to be almost paralysing. Whether we passively listen or actively turn away, all that many of us hear are disturbing sounds and cries claiming to have evidence of unspeakable acts. Historical events that lie in the past, however, are far less threatening and therefore far more instructive, and so I will suggest that the first step in trying to break the 9-11 paralysis is to recognise that international law and political institutions have long been concerned with the danger of nation-states committing false flag attacks in order to justify or prepare for international war. To that history I now turn. Part 1. Why it is rational to care. A. Manchuria, Reichstag Fire, Gleiwitz. From the start of the Cold War through to the present day, International political and legal bodies have had to deal with many dodgy claims of self-defence. However, almost all such claims have involved acts of either anticipatory self-defence or collective self-defence counter-intervention. This can obscure the fact that during a more distant time period, namely the twenty-year interregnum of the interwar period and the immediate aftermath of World War II, international concern was focused to a large extent on pretextual claims of self-defence based on false flag attacks. It is sobering to recall that the first major crisis to strike the UN's predecessor organisation, the League of Nations, 
was an international invasion by one state of another based on a highly dubious claim of having been attacked. In 1931, Japan invaded the northeastern Chinese province of Manchuria, claiming that Chinese nationalists had sabotaged portions of a railway line controlled and operated by it near the city of Mukden. Though the explosion was so weak that it failed to destroy the track, the Japanese army immediately accused the Chinese dissidents of the attack and responded with a full-scale invasion that led to the occupation of Manchuria and the installation of a puppet regime within six months. Historian Walter Lefebvre makes short work of any doubts as to what actually occurred, writing that, in the hours immediately following the explosion, quote, fighting broke out between Japanese and Chinese troops. By the morning, the Japanese army held Mukden and was expanding its control over surrounding territory. Its officers claimed that the bomb had been set by the Chinese and even conveniently spread several Chinese bodies around the explosion site. But authorities in Tokyo and other world capitals quickly concluded that the army had blown up its own tracks as an excuse to conquer Manchuria. Unquote. Upon China's complaint of illegal aggression by Japan, the League of Nations seized itself of the matter and sent a commission to Manchuria to investigate. Although remarkably even-handed in its assessment of blame for the generally tense situation in Manchuria between the Japanese army and the Chinese populace, the Lytton Commission left no doubt that Japan's claim of having had its railroad attacked was false. Quote, the Japanese, as was explained to the Commission in evidence, had a carefully prepared plan to meet the case of possible hostilities between themselves and the Chinese. On the night of the explosion, this plan was put into operation with swiftness and precision. The Chinese had no plan of attacking the Japanese troops or of endangering lives or property of Japanese nationals at this particular time or place. They made no concerted or authorized attack on the Japanese forces and were surprised by the Japanese attack and subsequent operations. An explosion undoubtedly occurred on or near the railroad between 10 p.m. and 10.30 p.m. on September the 18th, but the damage, if any, to the railroad did not in fact prevent the punctual arrival of the southbound train from Changchun and was not in itself sufficient to justify military action. The military operations of the Japanese troops during this night cannot be regarded as measures of legitimate self-defense. In saying this, the Commission does not exclude the hypothesis that the officers on the spot may have thought that they were acting in self-defense. However mild the rebuke, the Japanese knew an insult when they heard one, and abruptly withdrew from the League in 1933. Years later, following the carnage of Japanese aggression during World War II, the Tokyo International Military Tribunal heard evidence on the Mukden incident and forthrightly concluded what the Lytton Commission had been too gentlemanly to state. Quote, the evidence is abundant and convincing that the Mukden incident 
was carefully planned beforehand by officers of the army general staff, officers of the Kwantung army, members of the Cherry Society, and others. The tribunal rejects the Japanese contention and holds that the so-called incident of 18th of September 1931 was planned and executed by the Japanese. Unquote. This, then, was the sneaky face of aggression in a world where aggressive war had ceased to be regarded as a legitimate instrument of national policy, as the Japanese well understood. By 1931, a state could no longer legitimately say, we want their territory, let's take it, as Germany had effectively said to France sixty years earlier, in 1870, when they had gobbled up French-owned Alsace-Lorraine in a bid to craft a unified German nation-state. No, by 1931, courtesy of the League's collective security system and the 1928 Kellogg-Briand Pact, which denied states the right to wage aggressive war, a nation would have to fake it in order to get away with it. Hitler, of course, had been watching and taking notes on Manchuria, and when he decided to invade Poland in 1939, he felt he needed to create a veneer of self-defensive indignation before sending his already primed army over international borders. Thus ensued what has come to be known as the Gleiwitz incident. To create the appearance of Polish aggression against Germany, Hitler's lieutenants had German troops dress up as Poles and attack German installations along the German-Polish border. As Whitney Harris describes it, by August 1939, Hitler, quote, was left with no alternative but to attack Poland and to fight England and France as well. Still, he had no excuse for war. The Poles were not threatening Germany with military force. It was Germany who was rattling the sabre. Lacking an excuse, Hitler proceeded to fabricate one. Early in August 1939, a plan had been conceived for this purpose by the chief of the security police and SD, Heitrich, to stage simulated border raids by personnel of the Gestapo and SD dressed as Poles. To add authenticity, it was planned to take certain prisoners from concentration camps, kill them by the use of hypodermic injections, and leave their bodies, clad in Polish uniforms, at the various places where the incidents supposedly were to occur. On August the 31st, these border incidents were staged at Beuthen, Hindenburg, Gleiwitz, and elsewhere. Unquote. The Gleiwitz incident was not forgotten by the United States or its allies during the course of World War II. In fact, after the war, they specifically included it in the Bill of Particulars on the conspiracy charge levelled against the major Nazi war criminals at Nuremberg, and the Nuremberg Tribunal heard affidavit testimony regarding it. There is further tantalising evidence to suggest that the lessons drawn by the Allies from the Gleiwitz incident, the foremost being that false flag attacks do occur, shaped the debate about the scope of the right of self-defence under the new UN system being planned at the end of the war in San Francisco. Commenting on the drafting history of Article 51 of the UN Charter, 
Thomas Frank noted, quote, Even the terminology eventually agreed upon, preserving states' inherent right of individual or collective self-defense if an armed attack occurs against a member of the United Nations, Article 51, was criticized by Archibald MacLeish within the U.S. delegation as too vague. He recalled that Germany had entered Poland at the beginning of the present war on the pretext that Poland had attacked her. Unquote. Perhaps one reason why so few people outside Germany believed Hitler at the time regarding his claim of Polish aggression, and why after the war some statesmen seemed preoccupied with the issue of false flags justifying aggression, was because people remembered the occurrence of a notorious false flag event early in the Nazi reign, to wit, the Reichstag fire of 1933. The story is relatively straightforward. The Nazis set fire to the German parliament, the Reichstag, but blamed the crime on a group of communists in order to justify a mass political witch-hunt of the German left, the termination of political and civil liberties for the citizenry at large, and the seizure of totalitarian political control over Germany. What's important about this false flag for our purposes is the extent to which it was viewed, both at the time and years later at Nuremberg, as an act of state terror having international ramifications. The Nazis, after all, had made no secret of their irredentist designs on the post-war peace of Europe as enshrined in the Versailles Settlement, and it was generally believed that any event which would enable them to seize power within Germany would also enable them to begin their march toward the use of aggressive war to redraw the map of Europe. The feeling was ripe that the international community, in some way, shape or form, had to become involved in litigating the facts of the Reichstag fire. The upshot of this international concern was the convening of a citizen-initiated legal commission of inquiry in London in September 1933, shortly before the commencement of the actual trial of the communist defendants in Germany. Doubting the ability or willingness of the German judiciary to afford the defendants a fair trial, the London Commission resolved to hear evidence in the matter and came to a verdict regarding responsibility. The judges and jurors were nine public-spirited international lawyers, including Arthur Garfield Hayes, co-founder of the American Civil Liberties Union. The London Commission, which in key respects should be regarded as the precursor of the many 9-11 truth movements and international citizens' inquiries that have striven to investigate the 9-11 case, such as the 2011 Toronto hearings, quickly concluded that the Nazis had torched the Reichstag. Twelve years later, the Nuremberg Tribunal agreed that the crime of the Reichstag fire was relevant to proof of a crime of international dimension, i.e. the crime of aggression, and heard evidence of Nazi responsibility for it. b. Operation Northwards and the larger historical context Jim Garrison, the New Orleans prosecutor, who for years tried to investigate the assassination of President Kennedy, once remarked, quote, I'm afraid, based on my own experience, that fascism will come to America in the name of national security. Unquote. 
He was, perhaps, closer to the truth than he realized, for it was during the Kennedy administration that senior U.S. military officials proposed a false flag terror operation to justify international war with Cuba that would have made the likes of Reinhard Heydrich proud indeed. The plan was called Operation Northwards, and it entailed the following. Quote, the plan which had the written approval of the chairman and every member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, called for innocent people to be shot on American streets, for boats carrying refugees from Cuba to be sunk on the high seas, for a wave of violent terrorism to be launched in Washington, D.C., Miami, and elsewhere. People would be framed for bombings they did not commit, planes would be hijacked. Using phony evidence, all of it would be blamed on Castro, thus giving the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Lyman Lemnitzer and his cabal the excuse, as well as the public and international backing, they needed to launch their war. Unquote. As described by James Bamford, quote, Northwoods included proposals for false flag attacks of sabotage of the U.S. naval base at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, the sinking of a U.S. Navy ship in the Guantanamo Bay harbor, casualty lists for which, it was hoped, quote, would help cause a helpful wave of national indignation, unquote. the blowing up of John Glenn's rocket ship during his historic spaceflight, and a highly elaborate deception for simulating the shooting down of civilian airplanes, which involved the retrofitting of aircraft by the CIA, secret landings and disembarkation of passengers, and the surreptitious substitution of drones for aircraft. On behalf of the Joint Chiefs, Lemnitzer submitted the Northwoods plan to President Kennedy's Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, whereupon it was summarily quashed. Manchuria, the Reichstag fire, and the Gleiwitz incident were all undisputed, fully executed false flags, but none of them resulted in mass or even many casualties. Northwoods, on the other hand, gets us far closer to 9-11 in terms of an historical precedent, as it would have involved multiple theatres of operation and hundreds, perhaps even thousands, of innocent victims. Moreover, when set within the context of two larger and closely related categories of state malfeasance, namely false flags used for domestic political purposes, and false pretenses for war not involving use of false flags, the 9-11 false flag scenario becomes scarily thinkable and, if you will, speakable. As to the former category, we have strong evidence that the US government, acting through NATO, orchestrated mass casualty false flag terrorism against the civilian populations of Western Europe in order to discredit the European left. As to the latter category, we have strong evidence that the US government lied about being attacked in order to commence full-scale war against North Vietnam in 1964, and lied about the danger of being attacked in order to commence war against Iraq in 2003. Both sets of lies resulted in wars in which vast numbers of innocent people perished. Putting all these pieces together, what emerges is a horrifying mosaic 
showing the very real possibility of a mass casualty false flag attack being executed to justify international war. To dismiss this possibility out of hand, or to deny the right and duty of the international community to investigate it, is nothing short of irrational. Part 2. Why we haven't cared thus far. Why, then, are so many of us behaving irrationally? Why haven't we, scholars, statesmen, bureaucrats, the mainstream press, been willing to scrutinise the facts of 9-11 to determine if that event wasn't a modern-day operation northwards? We look at 9-11, yet we choose not to see it. We treat it as a taboo subject yet one of our own making. Using the language of litigation, we might say that although the official 9-11 account has been repeatedly indicted by alternative 9-11 literature and investigation, a trial has failed to take place. Indeed, we've taken this indictment, one that the historical record tells us is perfectly reasonable on its face, and quashed it for its failure to charge a cognizable offence. Similarly, if 9-11 alternativism were a civil claim sounding in tort, we have, in effect, granted the government's motion to throw it out for a failure to state a claim, when in fact it could hardly survive a government motion for summary judgment. The question almost asks itself, why are we doing this? Why are we being so summarily dismissive of charges to the official account? This is a sensitive topic, and again, before we broach it relative to ourselves, it might be easier to broach it in a safer way, historically and relative to our ancestors. Let us, in effect, gore their ox, and then perhaps we might be willing to gore our own. A. Lochner-era formalism and Pound's Legal Monks. One of the rites of passage for nearly every American law student who studies constitutional law is to learn about the sordid tale of Lochner-era formalism. The term derives from the 1905 case Lochner v. New York, in which the U.S. Supreme Court declared unconstitutional a New York state law that limited the number of hours each day a baker could work. The Supreme Court rejected New York's argument that the law was necessary to protect the health of bakers, calling it, quote, an unreasonable, unnecessary, and arbitrary interference with the right of the individual to enter into those contracts in relation to labor which may seem to him appropriate or necessary, unquote. During the thirty years that followed Lochner, until its decision in West Coast Hotel Company v. Parish, the court persisted in striking down state and federal laws that sought to protect the welfare of workers. The formalism of which the justices stood accused by their critics, both at the time and since, amounted to an intellectual insulation from social facts that kept them from appreciating the realities of modern industrial relations. 
those realities fatefully disadvantaged workers in contract negotiations with their would-be employers and rendered talk of freedom of contract cruelly farcical by refusing to gaze upon those realities and draw the necessary inferences from them in assessing protective legislation the justices were in roscoe pound's colourful words behaving as quote, legal monks who pass their lives in an atmosphere of pure law from which every worldly and human element is excluded unquote. in many ways pound authored the received wisdom of lochner yet as recent scholarship has shown the picture he conveyed was somewhat distorted the reality of what the lochner era judges were up to was more complicated than he cared to admit. Strangely enough, those judges were both virulently anti-empirical and empirical, at one and the same time. Their anti-empiricism was dictated by an abstract and highly ideological laissez-faire era assumption about the nature of equality in modern industrial relations. Drawing a page out of Herbert Spencer's Social Statics, to paraphrase Holmes's Lochner descent, the judges assumed, with little attention to real-world conditions, symmetrical bargaining power as between employers and employees, i.e. that employers and employees were equally free to accept or walk away from proposed labour contracts. In this wholly fictitious world of symmetrical power, Social welfare legislation represented an impermissible attempt either to rig an otherwise equal game in favour of the worker or to prevent the worker from exercising his personal sovereignty in deciding whether to accept the terms of employment offered. The only way such legislation might be justified was on narrow health grounds. If the legislature could show that its law was intended only to safeguard the physical health of the workers, rather than to paternalistically interfere with the industrial bargaining relationship itself, the law might pass constitutional muster. Interestingly, it was at this point in their reasoning that the Lochner-era judges suddenly became very interested in the real world, for on the question of health dangers, they were not content merely to accept the say-so of the legislature i.e. they were not prepared to be bound by the mere forms of legislative assurances, but instead insisted on reviewing the health facts for themselves in an exercise of quasi-de novo review. Looking back at Lochner today, we can put its benighted formalism into clearer perspective than Pound was able to. Properly understood, that formalism in the form of a priori assumptions about the nature of industrial relations that bore no semblance to reality, operated to keep certain issues off the table. The state of New York could not talk about, because it couldn't hope to win by citing, workers' poverty, or the disempowering effect of worker demographics, or how each of these factors, separately or in combination, prevented workers from bargaining equally with employers. To have talked about either of these things would have been to impugn the formidable laissez-faire paradigm on which the Lochner justices based their world view. Having thus rendered the explosive subject of class-based inequality off-limits and taboo, 
the formalism then served to channel discussion and fact-finding into a much narrower tributary, that of health dangers, the navigation of which imposed fairly prosaic questions about the weakness of the middle-aged respiratory systems and the requirements of podiatric fitness. These were, of course, downstream phenomena of relatively minor importance, but focusing on them kept the social order intact until, ultimately, the pressures of the Great Depression priced the judge's disassociation from reality out of the market. B. Our modern-day Lochner. The notion of taboo subjects that are off the table combined with a penchant for empiricism in areas of relatively minor concern, should sound familiar to anyone who has considered the ways establishment scholars, statesmen and journalists have treated the subject of 9-11. In the 9-11 context, the key taboo claim is that the government is not well-intentioned towards its citizenry. Importantly, this claim is no more entertained by the establishment today than the claim that workers lacked equal bargaining power was entertained by the Lochner-era establishment. It is not entertained because it impugns a formidable paradigm, according to which government officials and agencies in the First World West uniformly and consistently work to advance the welfare of the citizenry at large. A few examples will suffice to show this paradigm at work. Throughout their analysis of how best to combat false conspiracy theories, such as the allegedly 9-11 alternativism, Sunstein and Vermeuler, quote, assume a well-motivated government that aims to eliminate conspiracy theories or draw their poison if and only if social welfare is improved by doing so. They do not defend this assumption as realistic in any real-world sense, justifying its use instead on the thin and uncritical basis that it is, quote, a standard assumption in policy analysis, unquote. Translation. We will base our study on a potentially flawed premise because we do not care to inquire into the nature of a world governed by its opposite. It hardly needs pointing out that to assume a well-intentioned government as the premise for a study on conspiracy theories, which often rest on assumptions of a mal-intentioned government, is to assume away the most important debate. Then there is well-regarded international relations theorist John J. Mearsheimer, who writes an entire book detailing the lies that Western leaders tell their citizens about foreign affairs, yet is at pains to assure his readers, without any proof or even attempt at explanation, that, quote, leaders usually tell international lies for good strategic reasons, not because they are craven or corrupt, unquote. Legal scholar Michael Glennon argues that an unaccountable, national security-obsessed bureaucracy dictates all significant policy choices to elected officials, who are mere fronts, 
yet attributes this phenomenon to the benign fact of quote, smart, hard-working, public-spirited people acting in good faith who are responding to systemic incentives. Unquote. Finally, journalist and MSNBC commentator Rachel Maddow authors a study exposing the exponential growth of the U.S. military-industrial complex and the placement of the United States on a permanent war footing, yet insists, without reference to any evidence whatsoever, that these malign developments have all been, in effect, terrible accidents that nobody intended. A second taboo claim that hovers around discussion of 9-11 is that first world western societies such as the United States are not open and free enough to allow their citizens to easily uncover officials' crimes against them. Sunstein and Vermeule, for example, do not seem prepared to entertain this claim in the slightest, assuming without argument that the United States is an open society where, quote, the press is free, unquote, and, quote, checks and balances are in force, unquote. In open societies such as the U.S., they insist, quote, it is harder for government to keep nefarious conspiracies hidden for long, unquote. Conspiracy theorizing, they sniff, is for closed societies only. In like vein, political scientists Uskinsky and Parent approvingly cite Noam Chomsky's dismissal of 9-11 theories implicating the Bush administration. Chomsky asks, quote, Did they plan it in any way or know anything about it? This seems to be extremely unlikely. They would have to be insane to try anything like that. If they had, it is almost certain that it would have leaked. It's a very porous system. Secrets are hard to keep." Unquote. In reality, none of the a priori assumptions about modern-day America noted above are justified on the known facts. Indeed, by any standard of measure, the reality of modern-day America may well differ strikingly from what these intellectual elites posit. There is good evidence to suggest, for example, that the US government is no longer subject to popular majoritarian control, and is, for all intents and purposes, an unaccountable oligarchy. There is good evidence that, far from being subject to the control of its citizens, the US government successfully employs extreme measures that enable it to control them. Finally, there is good evidence that the US government has an immense ability to keep official crimes hidden from public view for very long periods of time. All of these assertions, by the way, are footnoted. We're up to footnote 70 uh, so far. We know that it uses a variety of tools to ensure this secrecy, ranging from the overclassification and or destruction of government documents to the control of the press to the prosecution, actual or threatened, of government whistleblowers. Although there may be an argument, somewhere, somehow, that a government possessing these characteristics is likely to be well-motivated and open towards its citizenry, I, for one, have yet to hear it. Now, just to illustrate how detailed some of these footnotes are, footnote number 70 on Operation Northwards and Gladio says these operations did not come to light for over 40 years, and their cover-ups were by no means exceptional. Following its inception in the early 1950s, Project MK Ultra, 
a CIA program to develop techniques of mind control through the use of hallucinogens, sensory deprivation, sexual abuse and other forms of torture, was kept hidden for 25 years. Tellingly, the secrecy of this project was maintained despite the fact that it involved the participation of personnel from 86 universities and institutions. A smaller yet significant example of a successful cover-up occurred in the case of a U.S. government program of involuntary medical experimentation on foreigners. This program, which involved the injection of syphilis and gonorrhea into the organs of non-consenting Guatemalan citizens, was kept hidden for over 60 years. Footnote 72 on the destruction of documents in the case of MK Ultra. The then CIA director Richard Helms ordered all records of project activities destroyed in 1973. As Senator Kennedy noted with exasperation, this document destruction was accompanied by a surprisingly thorough bout of official amnesia. Quote, in spite of persistent inquiries by both the health subcommittee and the intelligence community, no additional records or information were forthcoming, and no one, no single individual could be found who remembered the details, not the director of the CIA, who ordered the documents destroyed, nor the official responsible for the program, nor any of his associates. Unquote. To return to the main text... In fact, given the political and social reality of present-day America, I would argue that establishment intellectuals, as well as the statesmen they influence, are very much like Pound's cloistered legal monks. Armed with comforting models, they gaze outward, yet see neither the emaciated workers standing at the factory gate, nor the union-busting goon squads of the employer. Of course, many establishment intellectuals are social scientists, and as such they are both trained and presumably eager to study the real world. And so, just as the Lochner-era judges investigated health matters, so too do they. The mental health, histories, habits and motivations of those who question official government narratives, as well as of the terrorists themselves. Why our intellectual elites spend their time swimming in the tributaries of minor concern is an interesting question. Indeed, determining how and why minds are closed to key social facts for any group in any era is a difficult but critical task. For the Lochner-era judges, one can only speculate. The mental blockage was possibly due to parochial class interests rationalised as natural law truths, and mixed with doses of arrogance and ignorance. For our current crop of elites, speculation can give way to a bit more certainty as two explanations present themselves, fear and corruption. Today's establishment elites have several things to fear from questioning the official 9-11 account. First, they might reasonably fear reputational insult, i.e. being labelled irrational, paranoid, unpatriotic, greedy, and or self-promoting. As Professor DeHaven Smith has shown, this fear comes courtesy of a CIA propaganda campaign masterminded in the late 1960s to discredit critics of the Warren Commission report. Second, they might reasonably fear being targeted in more tangible ways. 
notes Richard Jackson relative to the scholarly silence on the subject of Western state terror, quote, some scholars may be intimidated by state power, fearing the ways in which state officials and state apologists can punish and harm scholars who apply the term terrorism to state actions, unquote. Retaliatory options are not hard to imagine. Research funding might suddenly dry up, accusations of misconduct might suddenly be lodged, private emails might be read. Indeed, in a twist of fate that can only be described as Orwellian, scholars who question too much in the wrong direction might have their online communications anonymously interfered with by government agents working in the cognitive infiltration program proposed by none other than Professors Sunstein and Vermeuler. Then there is the delicate issue of academic corruption. Government funding for higher education may well have fallen off in recent years, but supporting official government narratives and or pursuing lines of inquiry that support the agenda of key establishment players is still where the money is. This is as true for the fields of political science and terrorism studies as it is for the fields of medicine, pharmacology, business and economics. Although it's impossible to quantify the extent to which scholarship in general, and 9-11 scholarship in particular, is determined by the interests of academic funding sources, it's equally impossible to deny the reality and the corrosive effect of this dependence. Where then does all this leave us? With a bit of mental adjustment work to do, I would suggest, in order to nudge the cloistered monks of his day into the real world, Roscoe Pound famously called for a, quote, sociological jurisprudence, a tearing down of the wall separating law from social and political facts. A similar tearing down of walls is needed on the issue of 9-11. Scholarship in the political and social science is admittedly not reducible to journalism. It has both higher and deeper aspirations. Yet, who would deny that if such scholarship becomes too divorced from the facts of the actual human world, it loses most, perhaps all, of its relevance and virtue. Through an appeal to history regarding the reality of past false flag attacks, actual and proposed, mass casualty state terror, and intellectual formalism, I have tried to pry open the mental space needed for scholars to begin to engage the reality of false flag attacks used for the most nefarious of purposes. While I do not expect establishment intellectuals to run out and begin writing books that challenge the official 9-11 account, I do urge them to begin addressing the topic on its merits rather than simply ignoring or ridiculing it. At the very least, I hope that they will open their minds sufficiently to welcome and perhaps even to demand a proper international investigation of the 9-11 case. This final section of the article is devoted to the theory and mechanics of just such an investigation. And we're going to have to stop there due to time because I've got another full hour interview. So if you'd like to download the original and read her recommendations, then you can do so by downloading the paper from unwelcomeguests.net slash 736. Now, the official U.S. narrative on 9-11 has been challenged by various politicians, some of them in the West, 
some of them still serving 